Colossians, no, Colossians. And um, we'll be starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them. But now, and this is our verse today, our passage today begins here. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you once again for bringing us here today and gathering us together in your presence to worship you, to glorify you. And Lord, we seek you now to hear from you. Oh Lord, speak to our hearts, minister to us, instruct us in your ways and in your precepts. We pray, oh Father God, that you would open up your word and that we would behold wondrous things from it. I pray that you would convict us, exhort us, rebuke us, correct us and encourage us and that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ. May we be sanctified in your truth. Thy word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, yeah, I was reading the news this morning, and I, I have to just get Okay, tennis player Alexander Bublik. Anybody know who Alexander Bublik is? Okay, no, and anybody? Any tennis, uh, professional tennis watchers? Okay, I see people waving to each other, but nobody knows uh, Alex Bublik. So Alex Bublik is a professional tennis player, and yesterday they had, uh, I guess, in one of the French Opens, and he lost the match, and he got really angry. He got really angry. So much so, he got his racket and smashed it and broke it. And then he got another racket out of his bag, and he smashed it again. And if that wasn't enough, he got a third racket, and he smashed it, and he broke it. Uh, I guess, um, you know, John McEnroe probably was looking with envy. But anyway, the point being here is, is I, I use this for an opening because it just struck me as this is a perfect illustration for what my sermon is today. And as my sermon is going to be focused primarily on the topic of anger and wrath, um, the destructive force of it and, and, and exactly what we can do about it as Christians and, and the solutions we have to it. Um, and, and, and I think when we talk about anger and we talk about wrath and we talk about uh, this topic, it's very common, just like last week, we talked about sexual immorality. Now, it's interesting because in this text in Colossians where Paul is talking about the old man in contrast with the new man, uh, the old self with the new self, he characterizes the old self or the, the, the sinful human fallen nature in two categories, and that is in, in sexual sin and, to, and in anger and passion and wrath. And, and that is because I think these two areas characterize the worst impulses of the human nature. And so last week, Paul talked about putting to death, putting to death the old man of the flesh and of sexual passion and all those vices that encompass that area of life. And this week, we're talking about uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, 
And these vices characterize uh, a different aspect and impulse of the human flesh that's equally destructive and equally uh, sinful and offensive to God and is also endemic in the sinful human nature. And so what do we do? We, he talks in a different language. Instead of putting to death, he talks about stripping it off or taking it off. Um, in the way one takes or disrobes a garment or, or takes off dirty old clothes, he says, strip it off. Take off the old garments uh, that characterize the pattern of human nature of anger, wrath, and malice. Now, clearly throughout human history, we have seen our fair share of an expressions of anger, malice, and, and wrath. Particularly, we're seeing it now in our political spectrum. Um, recently, in the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, our political system, which has always been polarized, we live in a two-party system, has become exceedingly polarized. Um, and the language, the rhetoric, and the discourse has become uh, very heated in our country. Now, just so you're aware, we don't feel special, this is not unique to the United States of America. If you follow international news, just about every country is experiencing this same uh, phenomenon. Um, there is there is a very explosive politics taking place around the world. People have disagreements, they have disputes, it inevitably leads to anger, fighting, and in some cases, all-out war. And we're seeing that in our country, in our very real life, it's something simmering under the under the surface, and it boils up sometimes, and it explodes. Um, we see all kinds of expressions in that, whether it's political diatribes or outbursts, and in some cases, political violence and riots. And we have, of course, two political systems, two party systems that capitalize on this, and they, we have news media that capitalizes on it and, and exploits the frustrations, anger, resentment, and grievances by those whom they represent. I hear many people itching for a civil war. Oh, civil war's coming to this country. Oh, God, may no Christian ever wish for such a thing. The last civil war in this country spilled the blood of 620,000 620, men. Those whom we counted the bodies, we don't know. The estimate could be much higher. And if you're not aware, that is more people died in the American Civil War than the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. So if you think a civil war is going to settle our problems, you think it's a good thing, you need to correct your view of life and, and make sure you're sanctified in the Word of God, because that clearly is not the solution to anything. So what causes all these conflicts? James 4 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel and you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so at the end of the day, people want, people want power, they want control, they are greedy for money, they're greedy for uh, um, possessions. And so these are the things that lead to war when people want and they're denied what they want and they're going to fight for what they want. And so hostility among the human race is nothing new. And when anger goes unchecked, it destroys families, it destroys churches, it destroys nations. And let me make this plain. 
Satan is never more pleased than when people are locked into conflict and fighting and violence. Let me repeat that. Satan is glorified and pleased when people are locked into fighting and violence and vitriol. Pastor Paul shared with me the other night, he went into ShopRite and he saw two men locked in a physical fight. And he said it did something to him inside. It really upset him. And that's a good thing. It should upset us when we see those things. It should upset us to see physical violence. Two image bearers of God at each other's throat trying to kill each other. It should upset us when we see shootings, mass shootings, and people unloading their weapons and killing indiscriminately little children. It should disturb us when we see uh, uh, thousands upon thousands of people dying in a war and conflict in, in the Middle East or in Ukraine and Russia. It should disturb us. We should not become numb to it because it's horrific and it wasn't what God intended. It's the work of Satan. You see, at the end of the day, it's based on our human condition. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I tell you, apart from Christ, everyone is full of hate. No one's got a corner on that. Anyone who does not have Christ ruling in their hearts has hatred and malice and envy ruling in their hearts. It may express itself in a more, in some ways, more violent. In some ways, it could come across as very polite. But at the end of the day, that's what rules the heart of ungodly men and women. But what about us? It's easy to point the finger and look at all stuff. Yeah, but I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm pretty good. But as Christians, do we see how this can get into our own hearts and our own lives? How anger and malice and wrath could corrupt us from within. How we struggle with these very sins. And while we may not be locked into a war, we may be locked into uh, um, more domestic conflicts with our families, with our friends, with regular church members. And as a result of that, can be living a very upset life, a very discouraging life, and a very dark life. Because conflict never brings joy. Conflict only brings misery. And that's exactly what Satan wants, is to make people miserable. And so as Christians, we wrestle with this because we're new creations. We're very complex beings, aren't we? we? We have the spirit and we have the flesh and we wrestle between the two. And there's sometimes where the flesh wins and the spirit wins. And, and as a result, we are locked in this internal battle. It's a war within. So today we're going to look at this. We're going to look at, first of all, what this sinful aspect of the carnal human nature of this passionate anger and wrath looks like. And then secondly, we're going to look at the solution to it. And then thirdly, the result of it. So first, let's look at the problem of anger um, and what anger really looks like. Uh, for Paul, the imagery, as I said, it's taking off dirty old clothes it's like coming in from the field, you've been working in a field, and you're wearing old clothes. And the imagery for Paul is common, he uses it in Philippians, he uses it in Ephesians, and it regards the old man, the old sinful nature. When you get baptized, when you become a Christian, there's an old life you left behind, and there's a new life you now live in Christ. That old life that you lived before you became a Christian still shows itself in the life that we are as Christians. It, it rears its ugly head from time to time. It, and Paul looks at it as clothing, and he, he says you literally got to strip it off. You got to rip it off 
and put on the new man, the new self. We got to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. And we do this by faith. But here in verse 7, we're told that in these you once walked, that is both the sexual sin and in the the passion sins of anger, but now you must put them all away, strip them off, take them off. What? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And so here we see, uh, while like the previous vices, these list of five vices describe different aspects of the same sin. It's speaking of about a, a volatile temperamental spirit. It's talking about someone who's governed by anger and governed by a, a sense of wrath and, and governed by a sense of entitlement. One who's demanding and controlling and has to have their way and will do anything they can to get it. And so these five vices are closely intertwined and they're inseparable, yet they describe different aspects of it. And the way they're described show us on how it begins in the heart. There's the root and then there's the fruit. And so all anger and, and wrath and malice and, and obscene talk, it all begins somewhere and it begins in the heart. And that's the first word here, anger, which is orge in the uh, original Greek language. And it's combined with wrath. And you always see the two kind of go together. They're couplets. You never see anger distinguished from wrath. They're often seen in the Bible together. There's because the two go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Anger in this context describes the the, the boiling over, the word actually is a horticultural word and it talks about fruit that grows on the vine and the juices that well up within the fruit. And it basically describes the, the human emotion of when we boil and simmer within. There's a, there's a boiling up, there's a simmering, there's a, there's a flowing of juices, right? And when you're angry, that's precisely what happens. There's a, there's a simmering of emotions underneath. And that boiling up is eventually going to express itself, and that is what wrath is. Wrath is the outward expression of anger, the word thumos. And it it literally means an outburst. It means uh, to breathe violently, to be overheated. And and the picture here is very clearly uh, um, something that is boiling within, like a volcano. You have a magma chamber, and that magma chamber boils to such a point, and then eventually when it can't be contained anymore, there's an explosion. And that's the imagery Paul is presenting here. And that really is what, uh, what anger and wrath are like in our human experiences. And I think we can all feel this from one degree or another. Now, the difference is some of us have shorter thresholds than others. Some of us are short fuse. It doesn't take much to explode. Some of us are more long-tempered or, or long-suffering, as the scripture says, where you build up and the, the pressure builds and you boil and you simmer and then boom, the explosion will be a little bigger. But all in all, it, it shows the human volatility and emotion from within. And we're going to get to what causes those emotions in a minute, but this is what's being described here. Uh, clearly, being short-fused is not what God wants because love is long-suffering. Uh, the goal is to be like God, to be patient, to be long-suffering, that those those simmerings uh, are calmed down and there aren't these explosions on a regular basis. Secondly, is malice is described. Well, we have the first and the second, so rather thirdly, it describes malice. Now, malice describes the attitude of such anger and wrath. And this is where anger and wrath become sinful in that malice describes the attitude and the posture of our anger and wrath. 
And malice is, is evil. It seeks to do harm. It seeks to hurt. It seeks to injure. It's the, the, the attitude that plots evil against someone and rejoices when someone does get hurt or evil befalls that person. You, you seek harm. You seek bad for someone. And that is malice. And, and that is, as I said earlier in Titus chapter 3, that describes the old man. It describes the world. It describes the flesh, right? It says we used to pass our days in malice and envy, right? And so uh, we're not just looking at anger and wrath, but which, which is bad in and of itself, but then combine that with maliciousness and it's malignant, it's, 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 it's damaging. The goal is to destroy, the goal is to hurt. And then this naturally results in what Paul says next is to um, have obscene talk or slander, obscene talk or slander. Um, now, both of these words can describe different patterns, uh, but clearly describes the verbal aspect, and that is to lash out, and that is to use our tongues to verbally abuse the person we are upset with. And the verbal abuse can take the form of obscenity. It could be cursing. And in here, the word actually means insult, put down, to, um, to tear apart. And so, you know, you don't have to curse. You could just insult someone and make them feel like another fool. You could just ask them a question. How could you do such a thing? And you could tear someone down and make them feel like such a fool. Um, just And so the words that we use don't necessarily have to have curses in them, but whether they're curses or insults, the goal is the same. It's malice. It's an expression of our anger, and it's a desire to hurt the person and injure the person who got us angry. And then finally, there is the slander. When, when all of that has gotten out of its way, you see the absolute worst in the person you're angry with and you accuse them of doing the very thing that they never did. Because when you're so heated, your eyes turn red and everything that person is doing is got to be wrong. It's got to have malicious intent. And so the very feelings you have, you project on the person you're angry with and then you accuse them of evil, which they are innocent of. Oh my gosh, how many of you are sitting here right now? I mean, even yesterday... I had, to, uh, I had to address this even preparing. I feel like Satan was coming at me and I, I lost it. I blew my own cool yesterday and I, I had to come to grips with my own sin um, in, in seeing this, how quickly when you're preparing a sermon, the very things you're preaching on could come at you. And so here we see that these are sins that must be dealt with, that must be worked on and must be addressed and put off, torn off, stripped off. And so let's get to the bottom line then. What causes anger? What causes anger? And there's a lot of different aspects. We can, you know, some of it's deep-seated. It could be the way we were raised. It could be our inner disposition. There's a lot of varieties of it. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher from the 18th century, you know, he had a lot of children. I think 11 kids altogether. One of his daughters had a hot temper. She had a hot temper. And so the the, the story goes that there was a young man who asked for his daughter's hand in marriage and Edward says, you cannot have her. And he came back and he says, I'd really like to marry your daughter. And he says, you cannot have her. And he came back again. He says, I'd like to marry your daughter. He says, you cannot have her. He says, why not? He says, son, there are some people that only the grace of God can live with. Some of us are just naturally more hot-tempered than others. Um, some of us are more laid back than others. But at the end of the day, what causes anger and wrath is the same. 
And it's, as I said, it's an entitlement mentality. It's pride. It's entitlement and pride. It's because at the end of the day, it's, a, it's just flat-out narcissism. Unrighteous anger, sinful anger is always the result of when we feel that we did not get what we deserve, whether it's the way someone talked to us, the way someone treated us, the way someone not doing what we said, or, or whether it's someone interfering with us or inconveniencing us. It has to do with us. It's the entitlement that feels I'm entitled to a certain level of treatment, understanding, and, and I have expectations, and if you don't meet those expectations, I'm going to boil over in anger and let you know about it. You're going to, I'm going to put you in your place. You're going to suffer for it. That is pride. It is, it, is, it, is, it is ego. It is narcissism, and it has nothing to do with God and has nothing to do with the way of Christ. It has to do with exerting ourselves over others, controlling others, and, and intimidating others to get what we want. There are a lot of people who have often outbursts of angers to manipulate and control others. Because to avoid the outburst in the person, you do whatever you can to appease them so they don't have any outbursts. It's very manipulative, it's narcissistic, it's egotistical, and it's controlling. And so when we look at such anger, we have to realize it comes not from a place that seeks to honor and glorify God, but it speaks to the honor and glory of self. Now, when we talk about anger, we have to distinguish between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. There's two kinds of anger. Not all anger is bad. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In James 1.19, it says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I want you to remember something. Jesus went into the temple and saw that there were money changers making a mockery of the temple of God. They were defiling the temple of God. And he, he made a whip, of course, and he went into the temple and he knocked over all the tables, he whipped the animals, and he tore the whole place. It was a, in, in, from a human perspective, it would look like a total meltdown. But it was righteous indignation. The Lord did not sin in that. Zeal consumed him for his father's house because they were making a mockery of God. It had nothing to do with his own personal. People insulted him. And what, the, what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.21, when he was reviled, what did he do? He reviled not. The Lord didn't trade insult for insult or go tit for tat. If he did, the cross would have never happened. No, it had to do with his father's glory and honor. And you see, I'm telling you, I believe at the end of the day, most of our anger is about our honor, about our glory, and about our uh, pride and ego. John Stott said one time in one of his books, Christians are often not angry enough with righteous indignation. In other words, what we should be getting angry about is how God's name is blasphemed. We should be angry about how God's moral law is defied. We should be angry at the sin and wickedness that goes on around us. It should, it should boil us. It should upset us. There should be a righteous anger at sin and evil. But it almost seems like we don't care. But if you mess with me, I'm going to be upset. 
No, at the end of the day, sin is expressed in this sinful passion. It's all based on emotion. It's based on ego. It's based on self. Jesus told us that it's not a small matter. In Matthew 5, 21, he says, You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And we would all agree with that, amen, right? If you're a murderer, the commandment says you shall not murder, and someone who's murdered should, should get the death penalty, amen. But look what it says in verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment, for whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What is that saying here? Basically saying if you are someone who's controlled and driven by and you have unrighteous anger in your heart and you're not repenting of it, you're a murderer. Because inwardly you've murdered that person in your heart. Your hatred and and disgust for that person has created a monster in you. And you have murdered that person. You're just as guilty because it exists in you. Now, does it mean you can never call someone a fool? Oh, no, there's plenty of times we can call people a fool. There are a lot of fools in the world. But it's saying the word fool with a sense of condemnation and anger and hatred. When you think about this, it's very convicting, isn't it? Because as we stand here today, we reflect upon our attitudes, we reflect upon the patterns of our behavior, doesn't always look like that, does it? Well, I should say it looks like that more often than it should. And so what we require, we require grace. We require the ability to put off this old man, to strip it off, to take it away, to put it away, not give it the place in our life, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have Christ in your heart, you cannot overcome these passions of anger and wrath. They characterize humanity. As I opened up in my intro, I gave you all examples. Just look around you how angry people are today. By the way, New York is considered one of the most angry places to live in America. People are angry all the time here. You got to worry when you pull out of your parking spot, someone doesn't get ticked off and want to start a fight with you. You got to worry you're walking down the street, someone may shoot you or just out of spite because they're angry. We live in a, a place driven, filled with big egos in this state, in this city. We don't need to contribute to that. We need to bring it down a notch. At the end of the day, it's self-control. You see, the funny thing is, when you have a lot of anger in you, when you have an outburst of wrath, it makes you appear like you're strong. It it comes across as an appearance of someone who's who's very strong and powerful, but the Bible says it's the exact opposite. You're actually a a weakling. The strong person contains their temper. Right? Jesus, Jesus was the epitome of, of meekness. Was he weak? No, he could snap his finger and a legion of angels would wipe out every human being. It, 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 strength is not in being able to explode. Strength is whenever you're able to submit it to God, to bring it to God, to leave it at the foot of the cross and to trust in the Lord who judges justly, to not take things into my own hands, to pray for my enemies, to contain my temper, and even though I may be able to hurt you, right? I, I could really hurt you if I want to. I'm not. 
And that shows greater strength. Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Proverbs 29.22, an angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. When you have a hot temper, sin abounds. And finally, in Proverbs 16.32, better is a patient man than a warrior. A man who controls his temper is stronger than the one who takes a city. It takes a lot of strength to hold our temper, doesn't it? But you see, you can't just hold it in and not do something with it. Because if you do that, it'll just simmer over a longer period of time. You have to submit it to Christ. You have to bring it to God. Because God is the avenger of all. He's the one that we have to look to to bring vengeance. Not ourselves. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. This brings us to my second point of the sermon. The solution is our new identity. Verse 9 and 10. All right, so we looked at anger and the destructiveness and whatnot. And now verse 9 and 10, do not lie to one another, which is another aspect of anger, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So we have to put off this old man and put on the new self, the old self with its practices. Now, it's interesting how lying is tied into there. And I, I just talked, I did a whole Bible study on lying two weeks ago, so I'm not going to dive deep into that topic. But I think what we should see here is that dishonesty and lying are all bound up together in this. Why? It's because when you're living according to the old human nature, to the old self, to the old ways, you're living a lie. You're believing a lie. You're believing that the way of the world, the way of sin, the way of anger, the way of sexual morality is a good thing. And that's the lie of Satan. So you're not only believing the lie, you're living the lie, but you're propagating the lie and you're expressing the lie. It's a, it's a life of a lie. It's dishonest. And if you're a Christian, even more so because your life is a lie. It's dishonest and inconsistent with what you say. It's the old self. It's the old way. And it doesn't belong in the Christian's life. As a Christian, we're to put on the new self. And as one scholar puts it, Act as if who you are. Be who you are. If you're a Christian, you're a new creation, then act in a way consistent with that. Put away the old self. Those are old habits and old patterns and attitudes that belong to Adam. It belongs to the old way of life. We've renounced that. Or have we? Put on the new self. Now notice, it says put on the new self. That new self is our new identity in Christ. You see, in the end of the day, how we overcome sin is by not only understanding our new identity, but embracing our new identity. It's making our identity our life. Going back to verse 3 through 4 in Colossians, it tells us about our identity. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden in Christ. Christ is your life. That's your identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a new creation. It's a spiritual creation. God is doing a work in your heart. You're a new person. 
It, it's, it's, it's like going back to the seven days of creation and God is doing a new creation. He's starting with us. The first creation, he started with the world and on the last day he made man in his image. And the new creation, he's starting with man. He's doing a work in our hearts and in the end, he'll finish the world. This is our identity. And, and secondly, we are to be renewed in the knowledge. You see, growing in grace, becoming a Christian is about growing in knowledge. It's, it's a, we're a work in progress. It means we are renewed in our minds. We're renewed daily. Ephesians 4.22 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And, and that's where we're renewed. We're renewed in knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God. The more you know God, the more you'll be like him. The more you know Christ, the more you'll be like, well, how do I know Christ more? I know him more by knowing his word. By filling my mind with his word. By filling my heart with his word. The more you're filled with the junk of this world, the more you're going to reflect the world. The more you're filled with the word of God and with the things of God, you'll reflect God. It's very simple. You know, show me a person, I'll show, show me a person's friends, I'll show you who they are. Who you hang out with is who you are. If you're hanging out with Jesus, you're going to be more like him. If you're hanging out with the world, you're going to be more like the world. It's a very simple analysis. And so this knowledge tells us that it's a process. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day by day. It's a renewal. Every day God is changing us. He's renewing us. He's refreshing us. And we need that renewal every day because every day we get dirty and defiled with sin. But every day you wake up and start to a new day, you've got a new chance to make a day better. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And who is this renewal? What are we being patterned after? Well, the image is of our Creator. It's of Christ. (laughs) Notice it says, we're being renewed in the image of our Creator. And going back to chapter 1, verse 15, we're told that He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is our creator, and because he is our creator, we are being molded into the image of our creator, that is Christ Jesus. You see, the image of God, as I said earlier, was destroyed, it was distorted, it was, it was messed up at the fall. We no longer truly reflect the image of God, but when Christ came into this world, he came to this world in the image of man, but he perfectly reflected the image of God. It is Christ. When you see Christ, you see God. And so when, you, when, when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, Philip, uh, he says to Philip, what, what more do I have to show you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ perfectly reflects the image of God in man. And that was why he came. He came not only to live for us and die for us, but to set an example of what living the life of the image of God is. And through the process of growing as Christians, we are being molded and shaped more into the image of Christ. So if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you should be looking more like Jesus. No doubt you're going to have dips. 
But at the end of the day, you're, you're, you should be progressing. You should be getting better. That's the hope of glory. That's, that's what being a Christian is about. This is why the plan of salvation is so critical. Let me make this clear to you. Salvation isn't just about rescuing us from hell. Again, that's our narcissistic view of life. Oh, God saved me because he loved me so much he didn't want me to burn in hell. Wrong. God loves us, but he is more in love with his glory and honor. You see, if humanity was lost, if we were all lost and went to hell, God's name would be dishonored. Do you remember in Israel when, when they were going to die in the wilderness and Moses interceded? He said, Lord, your, your honor, your name is at stake. What will they say that you brought your people out here to die? You see, when, when in the garden, when Satan came in and he tempted Adam and Eve and they, they defied God and they rebelled and they sinned against God, it was, it was Satan had a victory there. He destroyed the human race. The crown of God's creation, it was as if he got a mud ball and threw it and defaced it. He destroyed the image of God and man. If God were to just let that be, God's honor and glory would be destroyed and Satan would have the victory. God is rescuing sinners and he saves us and redeems us not to escape hell, but to renew us so that we may reflect his image and it sticks it to Satan and Satan does not have the victory, but his head is crushed under the heel of the seed of woman. It is about the defeat of Satan and the honor of God. When when you talk about the honor of God acting for his glory and for his namesake, it's not about you and me as much as it's his honor and glory. Listen to this, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, say to the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but it is for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God is zealous for his name. And he will not allow his name to be trashed by Satan or by anyone. God will vindicate his name. By nature, we are rebellious towards God. We hate his laws. It's our desire to indulge our sinful passions. But God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new disposition, a new attitude. As a result, we're free to serve God because we love him. We're no longer who we used to be. The old self has been stripped away. We're new creations, and our new identity gives us new purpose in life. And this is the basis of why we put off the old ways. Because it reflects Satan, it reflects, it reflects the tarnishing of God's name. And so we renounce it. Finally, all of this leads to unity in Christ. You see, if anger and wrath and malice lead to divisions and war and strife, the converse is true. When we are in Christ, it's going to bring about unity and peace and oneness. As in verse 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, due to our sinful nature, 
We make divisions among ourselves. And that's always been the case, right? Notice when he says there, Greek, Jew, Scythian, barbarian, what are those words? They're identities. Right? If you live in the first century, what do you identify? Are you a Jew or a Gentile? I mean, you know, think of like the, the census. We have a census. We do, right? You fill out a card. What are you? You know, what race, what ethnicity, male, female. Oh, now you have about 10 different genders to choose from, right? Whatever the case is. It's about identity, right? You hear the term identity politics, right? What is identity politics? It's about, it's about having your worldview based on your identity and fighting from an identity perspective. Our identity is with Christ Jesus. That is our first and foremost identity. Everything else is inferior. Everything else is secondary. If we rise any other identity above that which is Christian, we fail to understand what being a Christian is. That is our primary identity. And in, because in, what does it say? There are no Jews or Greeks. There are no barbarians or Scythians. There, there are no slaves and free. In Christ, we're all one. And some say, oh, that sounds very spiritual, Bob. It's not me. That's what God says. I know people have grievances and, and people have things that upset them based on their identity. But at the end of the day, Christ trumps all of that. I mean, there was great animosity between Jews and Gentiles in those days. There still is animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Look at Israel and Palestine. There's great conflict all the time. You know what the beauty is? I hear about churches in, out, out there in the middle in, in Israel, and you got Jews and Palestines worshiping together. There's unity. Who could do that but Jesus Christ? If they didn't weren't Christians, they would be killing each other. That's what unites us. Let me make this clear. Our racial, ethnic, political identities, whatever identity you want to look at, they describe you, but they do not define you. They describe who you are, but they do not define you. But your identity as a Christian, that is what defines you. That is what defines what you believe, what you live for, who you love, how you behave. You are governed by a greater principle. You are governed by Christ in you, the hope of glory. I am not governed by my feelings. I'm not governed by the, the winds of the, the culture. I am governed by Christ. What else can unite humanity? Let me conclude. While it is totally inappropriate and sinful for us to express anger and wrath, on the other hand, it is perfectly legitimate for God to do so. Psalm 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is angry every day. He's angry with sin. He's angry with iniquity. He's angry with wickedness. But God's anger is a holy anger. It is not a sinful anger. It is a righteous indignation. And God is not a God of a volatile temperament, but he's long-suffering and he's patient not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is merciful. 
Nahum 1.2 tells us the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. How do we, how do we reconcile this in our mind when, when God is filled with anger and God is wrathful, but yet he says we're not to be? That's because God is God and you're not. That's because God is the judge of all humanity and you are not and I am not. God sits in the place of judgment. God is the one to whom every human being will give an account to. John Piper once says, if you bear a grudge, you doubt the judge. You see, anger and wrath are essentially us wanting to take matters into our own hands because we don't trust that God could deal with it. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There are two types of people in this world. There is the person who has rejected Jesus Christ. There's the person who, or maybe even they, they say they're a Christian, but they live in total defiance to his word. They profess him with their lips, by their works they deny him, Titus 1.16. And wrath is being stored up for the day of wrath for those people. It's not being shown right now because God is patient. But there's a day of wrath when God's wrath will be spent on every single person who has rebelled against him and rejected him. And God will be completely just. It'll be a holy anger, a holy wrath. And God's wrath will be a glorious thing because God is God. But on the other hand, there's another person those who are in Christ Jesus, those who believed in Jesus, those who've repented of their sins, those who've turned to the Savior in faith, those who've surrendered their lives to Christ, those who are battling with the flesh every day and, and, and striving to live in the Spirit and putting off and putting on and putting to death the deeds of the flesh, striving for the eternal goal, the upward call in Christ Jesus, those who pursue a life of holiness for without which no one will see God. Those who are in Christ Jesus, whose life is hidden with him and he is their life. The wrath of God was placed on Jesus for you. Jesus bore the wrath of God that you and I deserved. That wrath that everyone else is going to get, Christ took every drop of it. Every second, every minute, every hour, every infinite Day in hell that we deserve, Christ bore the wrath in our place. As I said last week in my Sunday school, he propitiated the Father. And so God is propitious towards us. That means he turned away God's wrath. And as a result of that, now God is favorable towards us. The good news is this. If you are in Christ Jesus... God is no longer angry with you. Only those who are not in Christ have to fear wrath. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have faith and confidence in the day of judgment. Do you have faith? Do you, if you were to die today, do you think you could stand before God with confidence? Or do you fear judgment? If you fear judgment... And you need to wrestle with these sins in your life. 
You need to wrestle with where you stand in your faith. Because for those in Christ, all fear of judgment has been cast out. The love of God has been poured in our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for acting for your name's sake. And in the process of acting for your name's sake, we have become the beneficiaries of your grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But it's grace, sheer grace. A gift. Oh, Lord, I pray that for those of us here who've known this gift of salvation, forgive us. Have mercy on us for neglecting such a gift. Help us, O oh Lord, to see and savor the grace of God. And that it would warm our hearts and humble us. To get off our narcissistic, angry pettiness. To be humble and walk with our Savior. Help us, O oh Lord, to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be kind such as you are. We can't do it without you, Lord. And so we put you on, Lord. We ask you to empower us and strengthen us. And Lord, we pray for those here today who do not know you. They are slaves to their sin, slaves to their passions, slaves to their tempers, slaves to their impulses. Oh, we pray that you'd free them. May they know what it is to be saved, to be set free, and that their chains would fall off. Oh, Lord, we pray now, do a work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand once again as we sing.